Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. We've looked at modern folklore before on the podcast, in our episode with Dr Lynn McNeil, and we've also explored urban legends, both in history and more recent times. But I'm not sure that we've ever had the chance to amalgamate all of these things at once. At least, not until now. Recently, we had the chance to interview someone who, as you will hear in the first few minutes, could legitimately be described as a modern urban legend, or as a product of digital folklore. That is, the author known as Chuck Tingle. Not much is really known for certain about Chuck, outside of the fact that his name is obviously a pseudonym. He presents as many things in interviews, some of which are obviously fictitious, but others of which may not be. In particular, Chuck's comments in this interview on neurodiversity seem very genuine. Whilst he's been known for many years for his somewhat off-the-wall self-published erotica, Chuck has recently become more mainstream, with his horror writing being traditionally published. His first horror novel, Camp Damascus, which we hear about in this interview, has achieved USA Today bestseller status and is well regarded. This is a fascinating interview, which I think will come as a surprise to many, whether they think they know Chuck and his work or not. Behind his privacy facade and slightly affected voice, Chuck talks eloquently on horror writing and tropes, genre deconstruction, and much more. I hope you enjoy this insight into Chuck and his work. You know, hi, this is Hilary Wilson here for the Folklore Podcast, and today I'm going to be talking to Dr. Chuck Tingle. He is a mysterious force of nature, splitting his time between Billings, Montana and California. Nobody has seen his face, but plenty have seen his sunglasses and pink mask. He's the synonymous Hugo Award-nominated author behind such well-known titles as pounded in the butt by my handsome sentient library card, who seems otherworldly, but in reality is just a natural part of the priceless resources our library system provides. And my butt is comforted by the realization that I'm okay and everything will be all right. He's written fantasy novels such as Trans Wizard Harriet Porber and The Bad Boy Parasophilus, and the Select Your Own Timeline adventure Escape from Billings Mall. He has a board game to his name and two podcasts. And most recently... Chuck has published the horror novel Camp Damascus um, through Tor's Nightfire imprint. Uh, Not everything that people say about Chuck is true, but the important parts most certainly are. Welcome to the podcast, Chuck. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. I am thrilled to be here. I think that um, folklore, in particular, uh, kind of interesting to me, and... um, as we very briefly chatted about before, I, I guess um, I, I myself, when I was listening to that intro, I thought, eh, you know, old Chuck, I, I am a piece of folklore. I don't know how many episodes of this when you actually have uh, the mysterious uh, cryptozoological uh, entity itself on the show. Um, but uh, I, I guess I don't I don't know if that's arrogant to say. I don't want to label myself as a big piece of folklore just yet, but I I do think that there's some elements where it seems very appropriate. You're definitely uh, hard to catch on camera, just like a Bigfoot. Yes, People that's hear true. of sightings of you like Mothmans. I, I think that you are genuinely part of the urban legend. Yes, and we there's definitely more, have not had that on. No, there's more. There's probably more photos of a Bigfoot uh, without a mask on than there there are of uh, of old Chuck. So that's that's true. Very. Very mysterious. Yeah, you, you're you a very you know, interesting part of the modern internet landscape, um, because although you had been publishing since 2014, I believe, it wasn't until the um, Hugo Awards fiasco that a lot of people started knowing your name. And since then, I think the mystery has only you know, heightened for the most part. Yes. Well, you know, you notice it, um, you know, from my perspective, I'm, I'm there the whole time. So I'm keeping yes. track of of uh, when these things happen. I would say, yeah, he, big, big bump after the Hugo Awards. I think what's interesting about that, too, is I was actually pretty I was pretty dang popular 
before that as well, they're they're just, you know what it is? It's there's just this series of events, and I'm pretty bad at memory, so they all blend yeah. together. But you know, I have I have over 300 tinglers, which you know are are I do a lot of writing. I define the tinglers as just kind of the erotic shorts uh, that yeah. exist in sort of a, a complete uh, world, um, and. A lot of those are are based on current events. So mm-hmm. there's big spikes in the awareness of me, uh, Hugo Awards being one of them. But every single current event tingler is like this little uh, this little peak, and then I'll go down, and another little peak that's a little higher. Uh, and that's been going on for about three hundred books. So you know, yeah. now here I am uh, permeating every corner of the dang internet. Yeah, it was fascinating to me when um, you know ChatGPT started really taking off. That people were accusing you of using that to write your books. It it was fascinating to me because I was wondering if they had actually been keeping up with you at all. Yeah, you know, because you've always had you know a very um, steady output. Oh, and yes. I've been doing this uh, for 10, was, uh, 10 dang years. Yeah, Morgan Daimler has a similar, you know, quick output um, with their writing. So it just was fascinating to me. It would be like saying Stephen King was using that to come out with his books. You know, some people yeah. just write much more quickly. From what I know, I have never, uh, I very much avoid uh, all this uh, AI stuff. But from what I understand about um, chat GPT, uh, I don't even know if I just said it right. But um, the the way that uh, it seems to basically only do summaries, uh, you know, and then if if someone's getting used it, they would have to rewrite that summary. And I guess I, I feel very not threatened by it because if there's one thing that I think I'm pretty quick at, it is um, the story beats. I kind of think that's the hardest part. It's pretty easy for erotica shorts, to, to be honest. Um, I mean, yeah. you you think of a problem and then you solve it through sex. It's a pretty much a one one plot beat uh, when you're writing those shorts uh, genre. But um, really, it's the I- ideas, and I can come up with the idea quick. So I, I don't know. I feel like a speed writer, even using... Um, and AI as it is right now would probably not even be as fast as as old Chuck because that could maybe give them the idea and lay out the basic paragraphs for them to edit. But when I sit down to write, I'm just I, I don't really I, I already have the layout in my head, so I don't know. I think uh, I think I could compete against this machine pretty well so far. It reminds me a little bit um, during the Victorian time there was the popularity of the chat books where people would write like very short uh, spooky stories and they would be putting out hundreds upon hundreds of those, you know, within a fairly short time period, because again, you're just creating the problem. And in this case, not solving it through sex, but maybe not even solving it because these often had oh, yes. bloody endings. Yes, that's true. You know, and then, you go on. Just make the problem and talk about how terrible it is. That's a, it's actually a pretty good uh, basis for a short horror story. Is create a problem, show how bad it gets, and something dies. Was, uh, Stephen, I, I think that was uh, Edgar Allan Poe's general outline for most yes. of this. Yes, that's <laughs> true. Um, well, you yeah. know, I I think of Tinglers too. I think what's fascinating is um, you know, I was. Uh, uh, I feel like most of the 10 years I've been doing this has been a struggle to um, be taken seriously as as an artist has basically been the whole journey. And, and thankfully, I think most buckaroos understand what I am doing now. Um, mm-hmm. And um, instead of thinking of it as a sort of um, uh, artless uh, scam, or I don't really know what they thought, um, understand that I care deeply about it and that this is a sort of maybe a, Tingler specifically, a sort of a maybe a gonzo queer art form, uh, uh, maybe in the the way of you know John Waters or something like that is yeah. maybe where it's where it's more seen, which is which is nice to be taken, you know, have my art actually appreciated in that way. But I I do think that um that process uh 
Well, it just it, it has it has taken me all over the place, and the way that I have finally come to understand it, or I guess what I've always thought about it was, you know, we used to have print magazines, um, and those are still around, but that kind of way of getting news has kind of gone away. And then we have, uh, you know, blog posts and stuff, and it, yeah. it really speeds up. We have social media posts, and so for someone uh, to take the news and then to filter it and give their opinion on it, which is what I do. I see an idea and I think, well, what do I think of this? And then express that as a piece of erotic art. Um, to me, isn't that unusual? I think it's unusual and that I don't think it's really been done before at the scale that I have, but um, yeah. I just, it always kind of made sense to me. I think, well, if there's this news article, I'm going to, I'm going to take it, internalize it, artistically uh, synthesize it and then release it. Um, I, re I remember I got an angry review once saying, um, oh, Chuck, it's so obvious that Chuck saw this on the news and then uh, had big feelings about it and then put out a book. And I just thought, what does this person think art is? It, it, it's just the most bizarre a uh, way of trying to downplay what I do. Uh, so it, it's been an interesting journey, but I, I'm glad that kind of uh, overall, it's kind of understood in a different context now. And one of my favorite things that some authors have been doing lately is advertising their books by quotes taken from one-star reviews online. Oh, yes. Because you know, oftentimes things that people hate about a book are something that someone else is 100% searching for. Oh, yes. You know, I, that's It's fascinating, isn't it? Oh, it's it's fun. I mean, I um, in terms of you, know, you wanting to you know, be taken more seriously for the content you know, within what you're writing, um, I've run a book club um, for a couple of years. I started doing it during the pandemic. And one of the books that we read um, was the first of the Trans Wizard Harriet Porber books. And people in the book club did not really know what to expect. You know, when I said, hey, you know, I really want to read this, you know, book that Chuck came out with. And by the end of it, everybody was clamoring to, you know, get their paws on straight because they had enjoyed, you know, the book so much. It you know, helped one of my friends through a really bad, you know, bit of writer's block um, because of that's how great. you were talking about the nature of creation. Um, yes. Oh, that's so it's, kind. What a sweet story. Yeah, the sincerity in your work is something that is really striking and something that I think has, you know, come through very powerfully in Camp Damascus. Oh, thank that's you. That's not, you know, horror is often not a medium that people, you know, think of traditionally, you know, as being a place for very sincere and very earnest conversations to be had. Um, but one of my personal theories of horror that I've talked about in the podcast before is that it's one of the best ways to teach empathy, you know, because you're sympathizing with a main character put in terrible situations, or you're sympathizing with a monster also in terrible situations. That is not like you, yourself. And, yes. you know, that was something that was extremely um, clear in Camp Damascus. Here's the awesome cover. Um, because you have a protagonist um, who is neurodivergent and queer. And that's something that is not typically seen um, within, you know, a lot of popular fiction. No, I, I don't think there's a... It's, it's, it's more now... Uh, but um, autistic representation specifically, um, you know, there's there's not too much of it. I would say there's certainly not a lot of it by an autistic creator themselves. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, that, uh, you know, that that was very fun uh, to do. I think part of that, too, was um, because I am on the autism spectrum. And, and I also have a lot of um, there's things about my my uh, appearance, as as you can tell, uh, that are are unusual just by definition um you know you don't really see people wearing a pink bag over their head very often um and my voice has a certain affect and so there's certain things about myself that are for privacy reasons and there are certain things that are just kind of an, an expression of my autism uh and 
it can be very hard to uh, kind of sort those out sometimes for buckaroos. I, and, I, and I certainly don't want them thinking, oh, every every autistic person has to get their pink bag ready when they go out of the house because that's what we all do. Uh, so um, I think after kind of um, parsing that so many times, I, I, I thought, wouldn't it be nice if I wrote uh, a protagonist that was kind of exactly where I am personally at on the autism spectrum so that um, when I was asked, I could just say, well, read this book. If you want to know what it's like in my in my head, uh, outside of the mask and the, having to protect my identity and the voice, and, you know, there's certain things I have to talk about um, to a... Uh, 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 obscure things in my past too. I like to say, if I post a tweet online that says, oh, I pet a cat today, um, I might've pet a dog, but it's all kind of real in, in its own yeah. in its own way. Uh, it's an honest expression. I just kind of need to veil certain things. Um, and so writing Rose in Cat Damascus was very much me saying, I'm going to um, write a character that is exactly uh, what, where I am at uh, on on the autism spectrum, and um, everything about it, very real experience. My stim uh, is actually hers of the counting five, four, three, two, one, four, three, two. That is actually uh, you know mine, and and um, uh, making note cards before social events, that type of thing. Um, but there's just the the thought process that I think when you're writing first person present, you're trying to get into the character. And a lot of the time, if I'm writing a, quote, neurotypical person, um, I remove those from my own writing. Uh, but with Rose, the whole point was leave it all in, um, just show exactly how you think. And, and that was really, really fun. It was a great, uh, great exploration. Yeah, and it's been really great seeing how many people are relating to Rose and seeing themselves reflected in her, you know, and her experience. Yeah, I mean, yes. um, the stimming alone, yeah, that's something that is very common. Um, and it was striking me how similar it is to uh, grounding techniques that, you know, I've encountered during therapy, too. Yes. Well, there's a lot of, I think, you know, because it's a spectrum, um, autism, uh, uh, also um, ADHD, a lot of times, there's these, there's certain kind of, uh, I think of them as a cousin cousins you know we're all kind of in the same little family that kind of crossover and i i do like i like seeing that i love the reaction to it it almost makes me cry every time i didn't see it because you know i know how important seeing autism represented was in art was to me younger when i was younger, and there was very little of it uh and then to kind of do that for for other buckaroos i think is so so neat and i and like i said not as much autistic art by autistic uh, people uh yeah. and and i think that because of that i was kind of able to capture some of the things that are more subtle you'll see a lot of autistic uh characters um written by uh, neurotypical people sometimes are, are exaggerated quite a bit um uh, in different ways and you know there's a very uh, there's all kinds of ways to be autistic so i won't say that those are wrong ways but i think the particular one shown in camp damascus uh my own it's it's nice because i don't think it's covered very often actually yeah it was uh making me think of um yeah i i went to school in uh, bozeman montana uh was where oh, i went to university wow. okay yeah and uh one of the books that we read um i was in a class for uh animal thought and behavior and one of the books we read was by temple grandin and um she spoke there and you know i think still speaks there fairly often but uh she was writing about in the book how the best autistic representation when she was growing up was data and next generation oh that and, was mine you know, that was mine too actually that yeah. was Yes, I, I, when I was diagnosed, uh, I remember going to a therapist uh, that I was seeing. And uh, when that discussion kind of started, I already knew, I knew from um, being a fan of Talking Heads and seeing uh, David Byrne interviews, um, that he was my, oh, okay, this, this is a buckaroo acting uh, with certain mannerisms that are my own. 
uh, and then I'm really kind of researching that and there, oh, he thinks that um, back then it was called Asperger's, which is what I was yeah. technically diagnosed with because it was a long time ago. But um, uh, but when I had that talk, I said, um, I feel like, uh, well, I said both Data and Spock. I said, every generation, I'm connecting to this <laughs> one. I liked Data more because I am, I don't know if this is going to rile up any buckaroos. I, I strongly prefer Next Generation. That was my, that's that's my one. Um, but um, I think technically, maybe, maybe more Spock because I felt like I have these emotions uh, as Spock does, but I just don't. Uh, express them was kind of the way I said it. And I said, well, data is not having them at all. Kind of related to Spock more in the sense of um, the Vulcans are having them and have learned to kind of subdue them, which I don't know. Now, now I'm getting into deep Star Trek lore. <laughs> I, I, I apologize. The, th there was that one single episode of Voyager with Tuvok and his anger issues that really oh, yes. you know, spoke out to me. But Voyager has some issues <laughs> well i think there was one i i recall one uh with spock's father where i think because he was getting older he started to have emotional outbursts oh, yeah, yeah yes yeah. and i i i really uh like that one too yeah it's it's always fun to see you know who people relate to in each you know iteration of it and which one they like yes but with um you know, one of the interesting things I think is that, you know, for a very long time, um, it's, you know, people have been able to, you know, see um, sci-fi and fantasy as, you know, reflections of, you know, people who are neurodivergent, who are marginalized in some way. But I think that right now, um, maybe in part due to what was happening at the Hugo Awards uh, recently, relatively recently some of that um marginalized representation has shifted over to horror um which has oh, as a community been much more accepting you know of promoting people you know these voices um you know, people writing about their own experience you know it's just something that i've been noticing lately um yes this the stoker con this year a lot of the panels were focused on you know mental health in horror you know, how to accurately you know, portray these things with a big message of, you know, write what you yourself are experiencing. Yes. You know, or if you are writing something um, that you don't have, talk to people. You know, yes. Which is um, something I've seen you do online, even with your tinglers. Um, when you started writing asexual tinglers, you know, you were reaching out. Yes, I yes. I think that's I an mean, interesting thing. Well, it's, I'm surprised more authors don't, don't do this. I find the buckaroos and my social media uh, kind of presence such an incredible resource when uh, kind of, um, you know, I think there are some stories that are not, not mine to tell, but as part of the queer community, um, I think there's this, you know, like I said, with the kind of autism and, and the cousins, uh, you know, I, I'm a few letters on the, on the LGBTQIA technically. And, and so we can kind of reach out to the other letters and say, well, we're all, we're all family here and kind of explore, uh, it under the queer umbrella, which is really what I like to do. But if I'm, if I'm trotting over to a letter that I'm not entirely familiar with, um, you know, as the example you gave, perfect one, um, asexual, um, you know, I have this resource where I can say, hey, I'm going to write this, this book. I have this idea. What's kind of the best way to go about this? Um, and then by doing that, I can learn a lot. And, you know, my new, um, the next horror novel that I'm putting out is called Barrier Gaze. Uh, and, um, there's uh, I, I, there's three lead characters, uh, and one of them is asexual, and that has a um, geez, I don't want to give any spoilers, but but it is uh, I think it is an important part of the story, um, and you know it's it's nice that I could uh, have this experience and talk to kind of buckaroos behind the scenes and stuff, and make sure that I'm I'm doing something that um, can lift up a community instead of add to the stereotypes or uh or different things um and you know so i'm i'm i will say this uh 
ace, uh, their ace arrow character in uh, Barrier Gaze is one of my favorite characters that I've I've ever written. I just I I I want to write a sequel to this book uh, based on her, uh, just because I love writing her. I thought I want to spend more time with this person. So, um, it, you know, it's I don't think uh, I could do that without using these communities. And what's interesting is other authors have this. I just don't see them using it very often. They don't just ask the question. I don't know why. It's so great. One of the things that has you in the past and you know still to a degree now, you know, happened with you know marginalized communities, um, whether you know they're you know queer or whether neurodivergent, you know, is that they tend to be infantilized um by you know other people. Yeah, this is particularly true of um, neurodivergent people. And I thought that that was a very interesting thing that you were doing within Camp Damascus. Um, oh, thank you. Know, how you yes. were addressing that and um, playing with that. And you've talked about this um, on your own. And I would happily direct uh, anybody listening who's curious about uh, this to your Tumblr um, with the Deconstructing Damascus series. Uh, but would you like to talk a little bit about how you were oh, addressing sure. that? Yes. Um, so, you know, Camp Damascus is, I, I did notice it, it, you know, with those two communities, it's just, um, you know, it, and I guess I should probably give a, a broader, uh, you know, it is a, a story about a conversion therapy camp. The main character is Rose, uh, who I very easily could have written uh, as a, a, a teenager uh, because, uh, it would. I mean, with that story, it would be as easy as a find replace because um, she acts like a, a teenager. All the friends act like teens. Um, but I very intentionally said, okay, I want to create a feeling of kind of confusion and unease here. I want to put it right on that line, that edge of are these adults or are these children. Um, and technically, they are adults. She's 20, but she's still in high school because of the way that this community works, kind of as a commentary on the way, not just, I think, a lot of um, kind of uh, evangelical Christianity works, um, but specifically the way that they handle sexuality. Um, yeah. You see it uh, all the time with not wanting to teach you know, banning books and all these things about um, kind of queer characters or any of this, get, get that out of our schools, they're saying. But the, the interesting thing, the follow-up that's never asked is, um, well, it's, it's not going to stop existing. Um, you just want them to not have a way of dealing with this or understanding it or identifying with it. Um, which is just what you do to, to children. Um, these are all, queerness isn't going to go away when you get rid of books in classrooms or otherwise. Uh, and so by by kind of saying, well, you, you can't handle this, um, you're just kind of treating everybody like, like children. So that was part of it. And I think also the way that they handle kind of um, abstinence, um, you know, it is natural to to start to develop sexual feelings and this idea of you can't explore that, uh, these are wrong, all this stuff is just kind of, you know, you can't, uh, you can't fight the biology of that as well. Uh, so I just saw across the board a sort of infantilizing of, of these uh, communities and, and cultures and so I thought, okay, in this book, instead of this camp where um, teens are taken, and by the way, there's also the question, it makes it more sinister because if you think, oh, Rose is 20, um, legally, these people can leave and they and yeah. they don't, they're not children. So I, I put a lot of effort to put it on the edge there. I knew that some buckaroos would think that they feel uh, maybe confused by it because it is confusing, but... It was such an important thing to me for the story to kind of show the way that these uh, people were kind of kept as perpetual children. And then I added a sort of a Peter Pan uh, metaphor layer to that to show that as the, you know, the lost boys are kept children forever. Anyone in Neverland is kept young. And and also to kind of give it a sort of, um, I think that based on the violence in it, uh, and some of the themes, it is not YA, but I think that I wanted to give it a sort of 
kind of a teen YA, like, you know, walk that edge yeah. of, is this adult or is this, or are these people young? Uh, and so, it, you know, it's a hard thing to do. And I think maybe some readers thought didn't, uh, it was it made it uh, more difficult for them to connect with, but artistically, I, I thought I, I it had to be done. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. Um, I yeah, I went into the book. I very carefully avoided yeah reading the snippets that were released earlier or any sort of description. And when it was revealed that she was twenty, which doesn't happen that quickly, you know that reveal, it was yeah. like a shoe dropping. It was yes. this beautiful, unsettling moment, and the mixture between what could easily have been a YA book and some of the more brutal bits of violence that are in it was extremely unsettling, and it made a lot of sense um, with what you were describing as trying to oh, create. Because you. You know, it you. is that's a very hard thing to do. Yes, it's unnerving. Well, and I appreciate you saying that so much because I think that part of What's interesting, man, I don't know if I'm going to go too deep into the, I guess that's what, here's what we're here for. We're going to go deep. But um, I, I feel like your interpretation of that is is kind and, I, and, and generous. And I think it shows, I think that if you were to go into this book um, with a knowledge of who I am as a creator and not really know me and kind of not take me seriously, it would be easy to say, let's use our example, get to the 20 year old part and think, Oh, that's a mistake that yeah. this, these people are acting young in their 20. Oh, there's a hole in this book. Chuck, Chuck did this wrong. Um, and I think that maybe that might come from just the idea that it's it's pretty hard based on what I do to get taken seriously as a as a creator. But I think that if you were to come in and say, oh, there is someone doing something artistically, you hear that and you think, oh, that feels weird. There must be a reason for it. So, you know, I, I did think about, you know, I have this in Barrier Gaze, and I thought, well, what, what's the better book to come out first? Um, and I thought maybe this book would have, I mean, it's received very, very well, actually. All the reviews are very good, so I can't, come, I'm, I'm not even complaining. Yeah. I'm just kind of analyzing. But I think, gosh, if this was later where I was more established as a sort of legit horror author, I think some of the qualms, the rare qualms that would come up with that wouldn't happen because they would not think, oh, this is just Chuck's for Chuck doesn't know what he's doing. Um, they would think, oh, there's a reason for this. So um, that's very kind of you to say. I just, I guess that was basically the most long-winded compliment to your reaction to actually give me the artistic uh, space to do something that's feels like it could be a mistake, I guess, in some ways. That's one of the interesting things that I think you've mentioned online as well, that a lot of people are um, talking about this book as if it's the first thing that you've published. You know, this yes. is Chuck's first book. And, you know, it's your first traditionally published you know, book. But that's, you know, even within the horror genre, that's ignoring straight. Yes. Which yes, you know, is true. a striking book on its own. But with, um, you know, with Camp Damascus, you know, in particular, I think that, you know, it's a very interesting um, commentary, especially now, you know, with book bannings at an all time high, um, you know, to see this infantilization and to see how this development happens over the course of the book, because it could, it could be viewed through the lens of a coming of age, but it's a you know, stunted coming of age, because this is a coming of age that should have already occurred. Yes, and yes, that's, absolutely. That's true of the other characters, too. You know, that, um, but you write about seeing this book through the lens of Peter Pan, you know, not as a retelling, but, you know, as that being a heavy influence, you yes. know, which is a really interesting thing, because one of the things people often don't think about with Peter Pan is, what happens to the lost boys when they get too old? <laughs> yes. Well, yes. Not a lot are, are familiar with the original text of uh, Peter calling the herd. 
Um, so yes, in in this, you know, I it is not a retelling. You you are correct. Although I guess you could see it as a sort of a a uh, I don't even know. It's like a, a fantasy of what what we kind of maybe wish when Wendy could do in some ways. Uh, yes. You know, uh, but uh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> uh, yes. So uh, you know, but in doing that, I thought, well, you know. Uh, if if this is centered on Wendy as an allegory goes, um, you know where is Peter in this? And I and I just kind of thought, you know, Peter and and Captain Hook are kind of in the original one. If you really parse what's going on, a little bit two sides of the same coin. Um, yeah. You know, he he is killing the Lost Boys uh, when they get too old. There is some very sinister stuff. So, um, so yes, I, that is why, uh, you know, the pastor is, uh, it's Pastor Bend, which I think, um, you know, it, it, I, I, I'm surprised how few notice that Bend is another word for hook. Uh, uh, but uh, so, you know, Pete, uh, Pastor Bend is is clearly uh, an allegory in, in the allegory, category, but also his name is Pete Bend. Um, so he is, you know, kind of Peter Hook, uh, an amalgamation of the two as a sort of hero-villain hybrid uh, at the end for for Wendy to kind of confront. Yeah, and it's, you know, a take on Peter Pan that, you know, isn't something that I've really seen discussed a lot because it's also ha- carrying this message that it's all right to be growing up. You know, you can have a good time without the innocence of childhood, you know, you can grow into a more fully developed person and enjoy yourself. Um, Because so much of media right now is heavily focused on the, um, the force of nostalgia and a kind of longing to go back. But this was so much of a, what comes next? Yeah. Well, it it is, you know, age is natural uh it's probably one of the most natural things that there are i mean across across the timelines you know age is gonna be a a factor and if you think about you know it's just natural you can apply that to um you know these sexualities that are that are being uh uh, stamped down to by by these uh you know kind of conservative powers um and it's just so interesting uh, that these groups that kind of thrive on throwing out things like common sense or it just makes sense are are really anti nature as a as a force. They're 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 really what they dabble in is creating kind of a a false reality and 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 kind of the uncanny, which is which is what Camp Damascus is all about. They are harnessing. Uh, unnatural forces to quote make people more natural uh and uh you know i guess if anyone listening spoiler spoiler is probably coming soon it's probably a good spot to stop if you're worried about spoilers but um you know that that does end up backfiring because there the thesis itself is is wrong no matter how you try to build on that foundation um you know it is natural to age and to kind of love who you're you're gonna love um and uh yeah i don't think the fight against that i guess that's what gives me hope is for all the ups and downs it it is not really something that the conservative side could ever win uh you know it's just the, the you know queer people are always going to exist one of the things that I found really interesting within it is that you have, you know, even on the cover of the book, um, the mayfly, you know, this very small insect that lives its entire life in a very short period of time. And in doing that, doesn't really have a life. You know, it matures, but there's no, it can't feed, it can't eat once it becomes fully grown. It's very so its only purpose to is about. to reproduce and die. Yes. Yeah, it's it's scary. It's I try to wrap my mind around just kind of the lifespans of I, I think about this a lot as a, I'm a vegetarian. So I think about it all the time with insects and stuff and kind of, you know, we're we're questioning these what is the worth of of life, of a of the life of a cow, of the life of a, a cat, of the life of a mayfly. Uh, and so you do have to start thinking about um, 
questions of lifespan. What what are you if you squash a mosquito? What are you what are you ending? Uh, and uh, I just I try to put myself in the headspace of what if my entire life was twenty four hours. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It just, I, I, it's, it, it is, it sends me spiraling, but uh, thank you for mentioning. I mean, that really is, it's interesting that that came out in the text. Cause I feel like that's, that there's, there's subtext to that, that you've pulled out that uh, yeah. is there. And, and I think about all the time, but I didn't even, wasn't even entirely aware of it. Yeah. It's an interesting thought because like within um one of the first scenes of the book, you know, she's having dinner and you know, Rose is so excited that there's a little bit of extra garlic in the spaghetti. Oh yes. You know, what a what an absolute treat. And then, you know, again, we're we're in the spoiler zone now. You know, she vomits up the mayflies, this creature that can't even eat. And so it's like this this pleasure that's being denied, this very natural yes. thing, because to eat is natural, but then this your creature that can't do it and you know in terms of like just going against your own nature you know even the demons within the book are caught going against their own nature you know their nature is not necessarily evil it's yes. just different because they're a different type of being but even they're being constrained yes. which is a really interesting take on it all yeah um, yeah yes. i mean it's it it is it is power. And I think that's kind of said in the book. Um, and that was kind of the uh, the genesis of the idea was, um, you know, you have these, uh, you have all these exorcism stories. And there's so many kind of demonic possession, um, hell stories. And I, I just always, um, when I see them, especially the possession ones, I always think as a genre, there's something kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, problematic about it. Because if we, if we inherently say that these demons exist, you, you kind of are taking the fire and brimstone version of the Bible and then saying, this is the truth. Uh, and it's kind of never ever addressed in these stories in the exorcist nobody's stopping and thinking okay well what does this mean for for queer people you know it, it's just it's so there's so much and i remember specifically actually i saw one of the conjuring movies um and and it is about a man who gets possessed and, and murders so i think it's the devil made me do it or, or something like that um and i don't want to disparage other works of horror um i i, I thought it was Okay, but the problem that I had with it really was that it is supposedly based on a true account. And I just yeah. thought, okay, if if this man murdered someone and and then years later the family uh has to watch a movie 30 years later that says, well, you know what? He was innocent and a, a demon got in him. I just think God there's so much we just kind of let the religious horror genre get away with a lot of unanswered questions i guess is kind of what i'm i'm trying to say and so i thought what if i i did a kind of a story where we turn that on its head and we say well you know if the church had this power of these demons what what would would a certain church i won't say all churches because it's yeah. not an anti-religion book at all. It's more an anti-using uh, religion for hate. But what if, you know, someone kind of took that power and, and used it to espouse these values? What would that really look like? Uh, and what if demons were uh, not some sort of a uh, abstract thought, but a species of, uh, of creature? So um, that that is kind of where the genesis came from, and I, and I just kind of thought I don't think I've ever seen, I haven't seen a lot of stories like that. The only I, you know what's funny is the one that I can really think of as Event Horizon does kind of deal with hell as a as a real place, yeah. um, but it's it's pretty rare uh, to to kind of see it that way. Yeah, one of the um, I I recently had the pleasure of interviewing uh, Nat Sagal, uh, Segloff who wrote The Exorcist Legacy, which is oh. going through the history of The Exorcist uh, films and move 
like uh, films and books, all of that media. So I, over the course of a month, consumed every bit of Exorcist franchise material. Oh, wow. Yes. Was an interesting experience. Um, but one of the things that I took away from it that has really bothered me um, is that there is an argument to be made that there's significant subtext within the book that Father Karras himself is queer. Wow, there's interesting. A, there's a couple scenes in it. Um, there's one scene in particular where his uh, friend you know, says, oh, well, you're going to have to make a, cha- uh, um, make a decision about what you do when you leave the church because they're leaving the church in droves. And Kara says, who? And he says, us queers. It's like, wait, really? what? Yeah, and I looked online. I, that, is, uh, that is almost not even subtext. That, that sounds yeah. like text. It's, it's right there. And I was looking online for anybody talking about this. And I found one post on Tumblr where somebody was mentioning it and nobody else has interacted with it. I, I put out a tweet, you know, talking about it and a whole bunch of people from, you know, HWA were liking it, but like nobody has really written about it. And I think it's a super interesting bit because you have him being a boxer who at the height of his career stops and joins the church. And it's never explained why. That is very and, interesting, yes. Yeah. it. I just thought it was such an interesting thing, and I've never heard anybody talk about it, because that would change the story significantly. Yeah. And thinking I, about I do, it in those terms. You know, and through that lens, I think it almost, uh, if that was the intent, um, answers some of the questions I had. You, you're, you're yeah. you know, that's such an early example, too, and you're starting to dabble in it. But in in general, I think, you know, that is what I like about writing in general, uh, but and, and writing uh, horror is um, th- within genres. I love genre. I love deconstructing genre. Horror has so many subgenres that um, <laughs> that. I think some of the greatest pieces of art within horror are the things that recognize horror and kind of um, draw out some of the unanswered questions of those subgenres. I think that's when something really kind of comes out and just changes everything. And, you know, that's what I tried to do with straight. That's what I, that's what I tried to do with Camp Damascus, obviously. And, and barrier gaze coming up is another version of that. These are just kind of, um, I think that curiosity, uh, is really, uh, what, what I find joy in is to say, wow, we've been doing this for so long and no one ever thought what's behind this door over here. Uh, so I, I think that's where so much of the fun and the joy lies in it. And I, I mean, something like you can even look at, you know, Scream when that movie came out. That's the perfect example of, you know, these things that just become phenomenons because someone says, um, wow, it's kind of interesting that we always do it this way over and over again. I wonder why. Um, and that sort of, you know, I guess that's a sort of meta analysis fourth law breaking um those are my favorite tinglers to write as well that's what harriet porber is is like as well so i guess i'm just um you know i i do like holding that mirror to myself uh for sure and and to the genres that i play in yeah it was um the newest version of stephen king's it that uh took the werewolf metaphor in the book that was very you know firmly subtext and made it just overt text by you know outing bill Hader's character there as queer and you know having that be why he was so afraid of this beast within himself you know when he was younger oh Um, yes okay yes yes. i i love that sort of analysis because i think that that's part of you know why you know certain marginalized groups tends to flock to harder because we see ourselves you know through this lens that you know, it's just there under the surface. Um, like with Rod, Rod Serling's original intent with the Twilight Zone was very much that as well. You know, to hold a mirror up to society, but he couldn't do it literally. So instead, he was doing it through, yes. you know, the monsters are due on Maple Street. Yes. But um, I, one of the things that you mentioned um, before we 
decided to talk about The Exorcist, which is great because I have too much exorcist in my head right now, <laughs> um, was the fact that this is not an anti-religious text. And a fair bit of the um, you know religious horror that I've seen uh, or in popular you know theory because the exorcist is pretty much a please join the church book you know, yes. grappling with faith um, is very anti-religion and that is not the case with Camp Damascus I mean not even all of the characters leave the book you know as atheists or agnostics um, which was something yes. that was really striking to me and yes I thought I would say like, uh, of the three main characters, actually, um, I see the end of the book as as um, that Willow is uh, is atheist and has been the whole time. I think that yeah. Rose's journey is um, deeply religious to uh, atheist, then to agnostic. I think that that Rose's journey is kind of a big swing and that the end of the book is to kind of be in the middle and maybe not even agnostic, maybe just a, a spiritual person. And then I think that um, that uh, Saul is just pretty deeply religious the whole time. So actually within the three characters, there's kind of a hard on both sides and then a, a middle ground, uh, interestingly. So yeah, it, it is pretty even by the end. Um, I think that, uh, I think, uh, you know, I give a lot of everybody, you know, who asked Chuck for advice. I generally, though, I'm hesitant to give it out because I don't think there's any right way to do art. But one thing that I do often say is that, um, uh, you know, create with love as your fuel. And that can seem a little abstract, but um, I really think that Saul uh, who is the religious character in Camp Damascus, um, is a perfect example of what that looks like. I, I could have written Camp Damascus uh, from an angry place, uh, and I don't think that the character of Saul is in that story. Um, but Saul is there because it is written from a place of love, and it's written from a place saying, you know, there is a way to experience uh, spirituality, even Christianity, uh, that is not hateful. And uh, and here's a character doing that. So it was just, I think because it was from a place of love, it was important for me to show that that there are versions of that and that the real enemy here is, is hate at the end of the day. Yeah, and Saul is a very unique character in that way. You know, there's a beautiful discussion you know between him and Rose where Rose is asking like how can you still believe you know, after all of the stuff that's been done to you you know and Saul says that what the kingdom of pine is doing is not Christianity you know it it's is. not what actual belief is you know because it doesn't have that core of love you know the core of the kingdom of pine is a very different thing yes and yeah well they got they got capitalism at the heart of what they're doing. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, it is a, that's a whole, that's a whole other tangent that you could go on is what happens when you mix uh, religious messages with a, with a big teaspoon of capitalism. Uh, but I, I think that, uh, you know, and, and also Saul, Saul, I think thinks, you know, she says, uh, uh, Rose says, how can you still believe? And I think from his perspective, he's, he's thinking, well, how the heck can you not believe? You know, we just saw a bunch of dang demons. You know, what what yeah. else What else is, is there? So it is, um, you know, I, I think that both of these perspectives have uh, some pretty good points. I, I guess it probably helps that I personally am, uh, consider myself agnostic. So it's, you know, I can, even if I give different weight to them, you know, I say agnostic, but, uh, you know, pretty much on the atheist side, but I, 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 mm -hmm. I have space, space for, for these different, uh, things. Um, it's still very easy for me to see the real thoughts and feelings and arguments from either side of, of this when it comes to kind of spirituality and, and, and what is, what is out there, which are some pretty big questions to grapple with, but you know, it, it helps if you come at it from a place of love for sure. Yeah. And you've um, written about uh, magic before, you know, in your own personal life. 
Yes. And um, how the act of creation itself is you kind of married to those magical ideas. Um, that's one of the big themes in the Harriet Porber books as well. Yes, um, yes. In a much yeah, more literal I, way. Yes, it's sort of, um, you know, having space for understanding that it's okay to not, it's okay to not see the cogs and the and the machinery behind everything. Uh, and it's also okay to try to see those, to try to work out everything, you know, as an artistic person, all I see is the dang cogs and wheels. It's, it's, it's all this big humming machine that I'm always trying to pick apart. And I think maybe why I arrived here is just even for my own health, you can go down that rabbit hole of trying to explain it all as deep as you want. That's fine. But for me, um, I kind of just realized, you know, some of this stuff, it's okay uh, to just um, kind of let it, let it float out there. Uh, and and to know in my heart, you know, maybe there is a way that the cogs and wheels can explain this. Uh, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get upset about it. Basically, you know, I I can explain it or I cannot. I'm just gonna let it uh, let it be. Uh, so that's kind of where I have ended up with it. It reminds me of um, the Mothman prophecies, where uh, Richard Haddam wrote that. You know, the choice that he made was to live with the mystery because the longer you try to explain it all, the crazier you get. So you just kind yes. of live with the mystery. You know, I, I never that a lot... read that, but uh, I saw oh, the film gosh. and I, I, I guess I don't know. I, the film is mixed reviews, but I personally, I love it. I think it's, I think Same. it's great, but, but uh, uh, wow. So um, compared to book, uh, uh, better or worse, how does it stack up? It's very different, isn't it? I think it is very different, but I think that it goes with the book very well. The book is a lot stranger. Oh, There's wow. a lot okay. of things that couldn't be put in the movie uh, for time restraint. Okay. But there's a lot of really bizarre things in there. It I think about it often because, you know, it is a story of a guy trying to get to the heart of a mystery. And the closer and closer he gets, the weirder things get. Yes. So that, it gets yes. more and more complicated. And that's like call, a lot of <laughs> the, the, the yes. phone call with Indrid Cold uh, just uh, sticks with me. Maybe I, I don't know why it just sticks with me forever. I I, I love that scene in the film um, and just oh, it's beautiful. Uh, you know, there's so much. It's interesting. Now that we're talking about it, there's a sort of a there's a character in um, Barrier Gaze that only communicates. Um, uh, through uh, electro like the devices oh, will only call cool. someone on the phone or um, if they're standing there, they'll only kind of uh, appear on the television and talk through the TV. Um, they never speak. And um, now that I'm thinking about that, there's some very specific influences for that character for me, but um, uh, I'm thinking, gosh, I wonder if that scene from then, because it's just the way it's so eerie. Um, I'm thinking, gosh, I wonder if I got something from that. Yeah, I love how the influences come from such varied places. Yeah, I mean, yes. you were, for uh, Camp Damascus, you were taking from the book of the sacred magic of Abramelin the Mage. And I'm still yes. not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. That sounded but... so good. I think, I believe in you. I think that's the best that's ever been said. That was amazing. I. I was surprised to see that book crop up in your writing. It's a very obscure piece. Yeah, well, you know, when you start digging into demonic lore, uh, there is a lot of it. And um, gotcha. I think what, what was so interesting and, and what I really like about Camp Damascus is that uh, there is um, there's just so much... Uh, there's all these fantastical things that are all taken from real text. All of yeah. the demon names, they, these are all real demons. Uh, well, they're not real demons, but mentioned demons. 
uh, in actual old text. Um, you know, the Holy Family and the Mayfly, uh, which I mentioned, is a real painting. Um, there's all these kind of, and and also, you know, there's a lot of allusions to Dante, uh, and and so these are all these ancient and and kind of uh, older texts that are all being referenced. And through that, kind of a, an interesting little conspiracy theory is is crafted, I think, which is kind of cool to take it from real resources, but there's just so much. It's fun for me to go into digging through all these influences to you know, figure out what might be there. I'm guessing that you're the same way where yes. you just have to keep you know, figuring things out to put them together. Yes. Well, like, I might, you know, my influences really I, I do. I'm. I'm. I am. I'm. You're not supposed to admit this as an author, but um, I, I just. I do not read all that much. I do audiobooks. It's very hard. I think it's part of my autistic ways. It's just. It's very hard for me to read without my mind wandering. So I think my biggest influences are film and um, uh, music and visual art. Um, pretty much. I. I just. I love art. And it's just the actual process of reading is difficult for me. So um, I do think that, my, that, you know, there's some pros and cons to that. But one of the pros is that um, I think that my influences are very broad because of that. I think that's cool because that means that you're drawing from influences that a lot of other people aren't. Yes. So you're putting together something very unexpected. You have um, up on tour.com. Yeah, you know, for those who are interested, you know, you've put together some playlists for the different characters, and you've put together you've put together some graphic novels that oh, yes. you know, helped influence you as well, which is great because again, these are two places that you don't often you know, have people going when they're writing. Yes, um, as far as reading goes, cool. graphic novel. You know, I can do audios, but. Graphic novels, I just, I tear through those. So um, I do really like um, horror graphic novels. I have a big bookshelf, and I'd say it's just about 95% horror, couple of superheroes, but uh, pretty much all horror. Yeah, I, I miss those, uh, a lot of those old horror comics. Oh, yes. Um, Tales they're... from the Crypts. Yes. Oh, yes. Giving me nightmares as a kid. Yes. <laughs> but that's part of the fun. I... You know, I loved what you wrote about you know, how you view horror. Um, you know how you can view it as an expression of love, um, because that's you know again not a take that I think people are you know, terribly familiar with. But I see a lot of that in your writing, and I think that anybody who reads your work will be seeing the same. Yeah, well, I hope so. Thank you. That's very kind. That's very kind of you to say. Yeah, so um, you're working on Bury Your Gaze right now. Is there anything else that you're working on that you'd like to tell our listeners about? Um, well, no, I think, you know, that will be my focus. I'm always writing tinglers, always processing the the current events and news of the day. Uh, but yeah, right now, Bury Your Gaze, I think that Bury Your Gaze is, you know, Ken Damascus was very personal in the way that I uh, mentioned kind of the Rose's uh, autism Barrier gaze is very personal for another reason um, in that, you know, I'm really trying not to say too much about it because I think like Camp Damascus, it is um, much better to go in kind of knowing nothing. I've kind of learned that the way that I write, especially first person present, is built for revealing mysteries slowly. But um, I will say that it is very, it's very personal and very, um, I think that creators and artists, um, I think it's kind of a book for them. I think it's a book for, uh, for yeah, for artists and anyone who has ever, whether you're a musician or a uh, or an author or a painter, um, it's it's really about creativity. And so, because of that, it's super dang personal to Chuck. And so I, I think it's probably, I thought I was getting autobiographical with um with Camp Damascus in a lot of ways, but I think this is dang even more so. So um, I'm very excited about it. And um, and uh, if Buckaroos like what Chuck has to say and want to support um, pre-ordering 
barrier gaze is, is probably the best. I, I, pre-orders in publishing, I don't know if Buckaroos know this, that is very important. So um, yes, if you're interested, then pre-order a barrier gaze. That helps a lot. And where can people find you online to follow the work that you're doing? Oh, well, you know, uh, on any platform, I'm going to be some version of Chuck Tingle. You can find me on there. I used to be able to say on dang Twitter, but we all know that that's gone to heck. Um, I'm still there, but uh, I feel like it won't be around for much longer. So, um, I, you know, pretty much Instagram, Twitter. Um, I very much enjoy Tumblr. I know that... Uh, not a lot of buckaroos are on Tumblr, but dang, uh, here's me saying sign up for a Tumblr account. It's great. Yeah, it's the only place where they're talking about the fact that Father Karras might have queer subtext. That's so you how know it's you worth know. something, right? That's how you know it's a great place. <laughs> yeah, but thank you so much for coming here to talk to us. And I hope to see you again when Bury Your Gaze comes out. Oh, thank you. I would love to come back. This was a great talk. Okay. Oh, well, um, wonderful. Okay, goodbye. My thanks to Chuck Tingle for taking the time to speak with us. You can head over to his website at chucktingle.com to find out more, buy his books or other merchandise, or get in touch. And there are links to all of his social media accounts on there too. Production is underway on the first episodes of our new storytelling project, Stories from the Hearth, a book at bedtime style podcast reading you old folklore books, stories and articles. If you'd like to be a part of this as a narrator or in some other way, please email our new address for that project at folklorepodreaders at gmail.com. Tracy Nicholas, who's heading up Stories from the Hearth, will be delighted to chat with you. Don't forget, your support is the only thing that keeps the podcast going as we head towards Season 9 in the new year. To make sure that we're still there for your folklore needs, please consider joining our Patreon from just a pound a month, where you can access extra content and help us to cover the time, the costs and the other work associated with running the big project that is the Folklore Podcast into the future. You can do that at patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.